Welcome back to Hand on the Line Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Boggs, and this is episode 14. It has been a minute. I think it's been three weeks, which, you know, screwed my goal up of uh, the weekly post. Just crazy events happened. Had to do some audibles. Had to do some curveballs. I appreciate the support. My listens have gone up on both platforms, YouTube and uh, Apple or iTunes. I can't remember what it's called. My bad. And I've also kept getting questions. So, you know, as uh, life kind of was throwing some curveballs and stuff, I had to a little... Had to make some adaptations, had to adapt a little, so I came up with a hand-on-the-line quick tip, trying to address your questions, because I appreciate your support. I've, I appreciate the fact that someone would consider asking me questions, just to, you know, after all, just being a massive meathead for the majority of my life, so, you know, I appreciate the support, appreciate the questions, and I'm going to keep doing those uh, quick tips. And they've been pretty fun, and getting, I get a lot of feedback on them, and it's probably easier for people to digest. And maybe I could help a little more uh, athletes out with just quick, you know, just ba- quick, quick suggestions and tips based on my experiences in, in the game. Uh, I know a lot of people deal with trying to gain weight and stuff. A lot of people deal with the small school stigma and stuff like that. So I think we share, you know, I could share a lot of common ground with many athletes, you know, and coaches for that matter. So I appreciate it. We'll keep rolling with those. I'm going to get back on track. The kids are in school. We got the. We're gonna go back to the weekly post, filming on Monday and everything. Recorded on Monday, posting the same day, and we're all good to go. And I just realized I had a V-neck on. I didn't know. I didn't really recognize I was rocking a V-neck. If you're from California, you know the pro clubs. You know these three-dollar swap meet shirts, and sometimes you know you buy them out of a box because they they got a mark on the tag, and you get them for like a dollar ninety-nine. Those that know know. And sometimes you wind up with a V-neck, and this is the tightest V-neck you'd ever see. So there's no judging on this one. It's a tight V-neck. It is okay. It is acceptable on all platforms. Anyways, I got a bunch of questions that were too long for quick tips. Quick tips are going to be like, throw this in your exercise, throw this in your warm-up. Obviously, I've turned it into a freaking cooking channel, and which is surprising. I'm the worst cook in, my, in the family. Well, there's like three things I could cook. It's my grandma's penne pasta. I could do her veal parmesan, and I could do her... Uh, eggplant parmesan i don't even like to talk about eggplants anymore it's such a stigma attached to that freaking emoji it's aggressive it's uh it's just disturbing so i haven't touched an eggplant since uh and besides i can't do it quite as good as my grandmother could cook one but anyways um i grew up i was at a, i was at a keto place for a long time and spaghetti was frowned upon i don't know uh but other than that i can't really cook so i'm gonna jump into these questions i wrote them all down i keep i, I don't know Leave a comment. Am I, am I supposed to uh, include the person's name? Some of these things are like, I got a coach. I work for a coach that does this. He's a good guy, but I effing hate this about him. So I can't. I don't want to include the coach's names. Or, or even I got kids and that'll be like, or athletes, hey, my coach is telling us to do this. I know it's wrong. Da, da, da. I, it makes me not want to include names. And sometimes I don't answer those questions because I'm not trying to start any beef. You know what I mean? I don't try to break up teams. I hate that crap. So I haven't uh, left any names. Leave me a comment if you think leaving names are okay. And if you got a question and you're on the YouTube, leave the question there. You know what I mean? Maybe we get some feedback going and stuff. Comments are actually increasing and likes are increasing. I appreciate that, guys. So uh, first question was, as my understanding of Olympic lifts uh, or my understanding of development grows, are Olympic lifts best or should we look at for other options? Okay. So I'm, I, I'm like... I'm the worst because I'm in a camp where I'm on the fence about everything because my answer would be like, maybe, maybe. So I'll give you my personal opinion, my beliefs, like for myself. And I'll go from there. 
So for me, I freaking love Olympic lifts. I love Olympic weightlifting. I like it as a sport. I like it for development. I like, you know, for multiple sport development. You know what I mean? I like watching the physical Olympic weightlifting in the Olympics. And I like watching it in CrossFit games and stuff. I like when they have the, the weightlifting ladders and stuff like that. I love Olympic weightlifting. I think it's impressive. I think it looks athletic, all that stuff. The reason I'm on the fence is because I don't believe there's any one movement that makes anyone better. It may. We have to remember that your workouts are, they're, they're general. You know what I mean? They're general. We're trying to enhance traits that in return may enhance the skills we use in our sport. So we're talking O-line here. Uh, well, I don't know if this is a, just a general strength coach or an O-line developer. But anyways, why I love Olympics, okay? Again, I'm fully aware that I'm just trying to potentially enhance traits that can enhance specific skills, okay? There's adding 100 pounds in my Olympic lifts may, not, may or may not improve me as a football athlete or an offensive lineman. The reason I like the Olympics, and I'll tell you my main reasons, is there's so much things that go on in sport, whether it's wrestling or O-line play or D-line play that are similar. Similar. Not the same, though. Is One, we're producing force. I don't care if you're coming off the ball, getting out of your stance on either side of the ball, running a route. It doesn't matter. You're producing force. And then on the catch, you're absorbing force. You're having to pull yourself under the bar. There's so much going on. I know we talk about triple extension. We really don't see it in sport, let's be honest. But your joints do triple extend. Your hips, ankles, and knees do extend to a degree. But it's more of an Olympic lifting um, uh, quote, in my opinion, triple extension. You don't really even see it on the blocks, barely. The joints start to triple extend. But anyways, you're producing force and you're absorbing force rapidly. That's what we do in sports. And in O-line play, I mean, think about it. I take a pass at it. I'm producing force. I'm absorbing force, stopping. I'm hitting, I'm hitting a, a, a defender's hitting me. And I'm having to pull myself back under to stop the bull rush or whatever. That's, we're talking very similar uh, language to Olympic weight, uh, weightlifting. And I always look at things as concepts, concepts, concepts. So, yes, I do love Olympic weightlifting. I do think it is a great way to... Uh, you know, build the stronger, more robust athlete, a way to enhance many traits that we see across all modalities of most sports. You know what I mean? Maybe, uh, let's just say court sports and, and contact sports and wrestling. Uh, for, like, for me personally, I still do Olympics because um, my moves in uh, jiu-jitsu when we're standing up really mimic the Greco wrestling, you know what I mean? I'm trying to snap myself under. I'm producing force. I pull myself back down. A lot of it is similar to Olympic weightlifting. So when I'm doing these, I'm hoping that I am enhancing the traits or maintaining the traits that will enhance or maintain the skills that I have in a given sport. So they're great. Here's the caveat. They're harder to teach. Um, they're, I think that that's a little more of a cop-out today than, let's say, five or ten years ago. There's so much information out there free. Free information on how to teach Olympic weightlifting effectively and efficiently. Um, but we still end up seeing just stupid lifts on the internet where a player's like catching a clean on one knee, he's standing up, or uh, uh, players doing the goddamn uh, Tootsie Roll. I don't know, a lot of you guys don't know about the Tootsie Roll dance, but, but uh, their knees are just touching and they're grinding through some stuff. I'll say this when I see these athletes 
on social media, grind through these lifts on the Olympic. It's always the Olympic lifts. You see bad squats and stuff, but with Olympic lifts, it's a little more cringe because you're moving around the bar. There's so much moving parts. You're disconnected and coming back connected. You see these lifts, I'm like, they, the, the, I don't think we should be bashing the athlete. I think, okay, that athlete that just pushed through every faulty movement you could think of in order to stand up with that lift and his team's going crazy, I like that kid. I want that guy on my team. Having said that, we got to fix that damn technique because it's a cardinal sin to get hurt in the freaking weight room when you're getting when you're trying to play a sport, right? So don't bash the kid and and don't bash the coaches. Direct them. This is an adult problem. This is a coaching problem that we got to help them out. We got to direct them to the YouTubes. You know what I mean? You got Cal Strength. You got um uh what's his name? Mash Elite Performance. You got Kelly Starrett. You got Diane Fu. Uh, you have Olympic weightlifting coaches, you have CrossFit coaches that coach Olympic weights well. And there's less excuse today for seeing that bullshit on the internet because there's so much information out there that even a coach that's having to work a full-time job, coach a position, and be the strength coach for their high school can easily find some you know, very digestible application of Olympic lifts for their athletes. Okay, So I think that the, the fact that they're hard to teach is a cop-out, yeah, um another thing is like limited time you can't it takes it's it, it, there's definitely a progression because even at Humboldt State I think Drew Peterson has coached them as well as anyone could possibly do it he was teaching you know how to catch the full clean from the beginning so most of our guys you know that I ever saw had really good Olympic weightlifting form for football players all right let's let's make a distinction there that will never look like Olympic weightlifters but for football players uh at Humboldt State uh, Drew Peterson did a great job of making us look good, have good Olympic weight uh, or a good Olympic lift. So it does take time to develop those movements. And you can make the argument, yeah, you could be teaching something else in that time. Perfectly fine. So I think the, the key is that we have to understand is that why we do what the hell we do and understand that um, it's, we're doing general exercises in hopes of uh, enhancing something specific for the skill, right? Just because you got your clean stronger doesn't mean you're going to be a better football player. So it's the totality of everything, right? But I do think you think of the freaking game, you produce force, you absorb force rapidly, you have to move your body underneath, you have to find leverage, you have to find angles. It makes a lot of sense to do Olympics. I like the Franz Bosch style Olympics because um, you get the single leg, you know, uh, explosive movements. We don't really do a ton of uh, single leg explosive movements. You do your sprinting and stuff, right? But in the weight room, you know, we do more static movements. We're doing more lunges and split squats and stuff. So I like the Franz Bosch idea. Plus, I like the fact that you get that lunge. Uh, for those who don't know, Franz Bosch is, you can look it up. Just look up Franz Bosch clean, box clean. You basically land your foot on a box in, in, a, in, a, in a lunge position, right? I love that. So I like, there's so many different variations. And then I guess if you're getting to the, the, the bulk of the argument, it's not the best for everyone. So if you got someone that's beat up, his tissues are beat up, or it's in season, blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay, it's not the best for him. You got a 10-year NFL vet, and he's never done Olympics. Do you, do you spend time teaching him? Probably not. You could. There's a million things you could do otherwise. You could do, just think of the Franz Bosch movements. You could do that with a band, uh, you know, attached to your hip. Um, you could do trap bar jumps if you're looking for explosive. You could. There, there's so many things you could do that you uh, don't just have to be like, Oh, I, 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 you don't have to just be so rigid, right? There's always derivatives. But for me, uh, like if I was running a high school program, 
I would take time to develop the Olympic lifts. I really would. And the same in a college program. Uh, NFL guys, you don't know what you're going to get, right? So you gotta you got to have your why and you got to be flexible because those older guys aren't going to put up with that shit. You know what I mean? So I love Olympic lifts. Nothing's changed. I've actually – I kind of feel bad about this. Uh, where I worked before, we did a uh, – I don't know, a, 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 what was it? Something academy. And the one thing I didn't think we should – I thought we should have stuck to O-line specific stuff. And the one thing I said we shouldn't do was the Olympic weightlifting. And I guess to challenge me, they gave me the Olympic weightlifting one. I'm an Olympic weightlifting enthusiast. I'm not an expert. Nor will I say I'm an expert of anything. I can't stand. I think one of the most cringe things people do is call themselves experts, especially this freaking O-line space and stuff. I, God, that's nuts to me, dude. It's, it's, it's cringe. It's over the top calling yourself an expert or a guru. But one thing I'm not even close to being an expert of is Olympic weightlifting. I'm an enthusiast. The guys I work with, we do Olympic weightlifting. So I'm, I'm, I'm well-versed in it, and I've done them for enough years. I think I started doing them when I was mm, eighth grade in my backyard with a, with, a, <laughs> with a non-Olympic bar in the grass, catch it, probably doing the splits, throw it. And I got better over the years, got better in high school, got much better with Drew Peterson. My mentor, one of the greatest strength coaches ever, one of the shittiest places in the world, Humboldt State. But um, uh, and then I've done the seminars since then to kind of improve these things. Uh, but I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself an enthusiast, and I'm good enough to, you know, work with a with an O-line population that I train and some of the fighters that I might work with uh, to improve their movement or make sure they're doing it right. But I don't think you should pay me for that crap. So I, that, that's weird. That was a weird thing for me. Um, just my opinion. Anyways, yeah, I love Olympic lifts, but you have to do them, no. No, and that hurts me because I love them. But I have to be honest, right? I'm always on the fence about movements because I've seen too many different athletes, too many different body types, you know what I mean? And too, and just too much shit that you can do, you know what I mean? You could throw med balls, you could throw kettlebells and stuff like that. I've seen people throwing kettlebells over their head. There's so much you can do. But for me, like you're talking time, you're talking constraints and things like that, and we're just trying to mimic, you know what I mean, things that mimic uh, specific, we're trying to get some biological effects, some physiological effect. Olympic lifts are great, right? Okay, so um, can a program be good? See, this is I, I mentioned this in one of my quick tips. I had two Olympic lifting um, uh, questions, which when I, if you ever hear me say I got a bunch of questions about something, that means more than one. That's a bunch. I think by definition, that's true. So if I say a bunch, it's me speaking in hyperbole. I'm not that important. It's not like I get 50 questions. But I did get two questions regarding Olympics from two different people on two different platforms. The first one was on Twitter, and this one was on the gram. Can a program be good if they don't teach Olympic lifts? Answer, absolutely. Um, I had two really good strength coaches in NFL. I had I, I take that back. I had a lot of good strength coaches in NFL because Ted Raff is in Philly. He's a really good strength coach. Um, he was the assistant. We didn't do Olympic lifts there, but when I came in there with him, we did Olympic lifts. That makes sense. You know what I mean? On a, came in there on Players' Day off and stuff. But uh, in Chicago, I had Mike Clark. I admire that man. He's a great dude. I, it was kind of funny because I was a big fan of Dat, Dat Wynn growing up. He was number 59 for the Cowboys. He was like a five foot nine middle linebacker, just a, just a monster. Fun to watch 
when I read his book, he talked about Mike Clark. So when Mike Clark became my strength coach, it was it was an honor because Mike because Dad Wynn spoke about him how I speak about Drew Peterson, and I held Dad Wynn in high regard, right? Anyways, uh, we did a lot of Olympics there. We did uh, complexes and stuff like that. When I went to Buddy Morris, who was this is the funniest little dude ever. He is a character of himself and probably the smartest human being I've ever met. Like, he could be a, a neurosurgeon. We didn't do Olympics. We did not. I think he hadn't taught Olympics since the 80s. And, when he, you know, he, we, uh, I thought he wrote an amazing program. He never takes credit for anything. Just an amazing strength coach. And he's funny as hell. He's fun to mess with. And, uh, I mean, we did not do anything, no, nothing like an Olympic. And I thought he wrote an amazing program. And he had a why, and he stuck to it. And he did, you know, I think he did an, he adapted, um, you know, like taking everything through his own filter, but he took information from Dan Pfaff and Altus and Stuart McMillan and Cheedy uh, and uh, largely uh, based off of Charlie Francis with the high-low and uh, Westside Barbell. And he filtered it all through his way of, you know, figuring things out and seeing how things ran in the NFL teams he'd been on. And he created the most amazing program ever. Uh, the reason I say that is because it was like Drew Peterson's program where you never you felt feeling, you left the workout feeling accomplished. You never felt weaker. You, fe you felt good. You felt ready for the next day. You felt stronger for the next day. But you also put some damn work in. So we did jumps. We did box squats, we did regular squats, we did uh, zombie front squats, we did trap bars, we did sprints, we did a bunch of, we did some France Bosch variations. He wouldn't do them with the clean, but he would do them with a band attached to our hip. Uh, we, we, you know, we did sled pushes, we threw the freak out of uh, medicine balls, and if you talk to Buddy Morris, we're so opposite. He, he's got to speak in scientific talk. I used to just keep my phone on me so I could uh, Google the words he said, but, you know, he'd be like, oh, it's... It's our low, upper body day. It's our low CNS day. But with our high CNS exposure, will be three sets of 10 med ball tosses. Because Charlie Francis said it's okay to do two high CNS exposures back-to-back -back as long as it's less in volume. He would say these things, but, you know, we threw the hell out of med balls. He wrote a great freaking program. The other thing about that is I'm a meathead. Not, not, like, not on the level of uh, Roberto Garza. That guy's a special type of meathead. But I like to lift some heavy weight. Um, but I'd say I'm different because, like, if I feel something that feels, like, off, I'm like, okay, I'm going to rest this and find a different movement. Like, Garza would be like, oh, I, I just popped my hamstring. I better still max out on squat. I'd be like, oh, I popped my hamstring. I'm going to go do some leg extensions. I don't know. We're different. Like, he's, a, he's you know, 10th degree. I got a purple belt. He's 10th degree black belt. But in Buddy Morris's program, everything was submaximal. So he had max effort, and he had submaximal. But on the max effort days, so let's say it was an upper or lower max effort, you'd hit either accelerations, um, sled pushes, a heavy sled push, and he would mimic kind of the time demands of football. Because Again, noting that it was general, but he was trying to, uh, you know, make adaptations to the specifics. So we would push a sled with 300 pounds on it because most of the guys we pushed in the NFL were 300 pounds, right? We'd push it for five seconds, and we'd rest for 40 seconds. Sounds like a play, right? You block someone for five seconds. I don't think it's quite that long, but it's, it's, uh, it's harder because they're fighting against you and stuff like that. But we'd block a sled for five, run with, sprint with a sled for five seconds, 
a sprint is relative to 300 pounds, and we'd rest 40. And we'd do that for six sets, uh, six reps normally. We'd rest two minutes and do it again. So that would be like, um, you know, his max effort day. But then when we get in the weight room, that would be our sprint portion. Sometimes it would be just accelerating, pulling a sled. Sometimes it would just be our body weight. Sometimes it would be throwing a med ball and accelerating. Sometimes it was max velocity like flying tents, right? Or sometimes we'd do uh, accelerations and then touch some flying tens and then go lift. We never lifted above 80%. If we were doing squats, we never went above 80%. He used Prilipin's chart, and we'd find, you know, he'd have like a, an absolute strength phase, a power phase, and a speed phase, and he'd base the numbers and volume off of those things. But we never maxed out. I think when he started using trap bar, because it's hard to mess up a trap bar, and it's really easy to teach a technique compared to, you know, let's say traditional deadlifts or traditional squats or box squats. I think he started pushing it a little heavier on the max effort for the, for the bigs, you know what I mean, the closer you get to the ball. Um, so a lot of his max effort stuff came to that trap bar, and I think he was pushing much closer to, you know, those 90% plus numbers. Prior to that, though, he rarely went above 80%. I think on floor press for upper body, which would be like a low CNS exposure day, um, we he he went. I remember going to eighty five percent one time. So the, the trade off was like um, traditionally, like in, in the let's say West Side Barbell max effort, you're you're it's a max, right? And then I've seen less variations, like Donnie Thompson would do five sets of two. That's what Garza did a lot of. I think he does three by two now, and I think Olin Krutz does the same three by two. So it's you're, you know what I mean? Everything's above 90% though. And uh, I think Buddy didn't do that because he figured, uh, he, he said anything could be max effort, anything, right? You could throw a heavy med ball, you can hit the sprint max effort, or playing a football game is max effort. He felt like it all kind of could beat you up. So he would just go a little higher volume and a little less intensity on his uh, heavy day movements. And I think he was right because I left there feeling real good kind of like how I felt in college. So, you know, and as a meathead, I, I do recognize the beat you up. Maybe I'm just a pussy. Uh, I'm sure if Garza or Olin listened to this, they would say I'm just being a pussy. Anyways, uh, next question. What's my favorite exercise? That's interesting. So I did say my favorite exercise is Olympic lifts. And I've I, I got to change that. I think, I, and I, it became more clear over the COVID year when People just didn't have access to gyms. They didn't have access to equipment. I saw some CrossFit gyms out here. They were figuring ways to get it done. They were lifting outside, you know what I mean, what equipment they could bring outside, you know what I mean, until maybe they got in trouble. Uh, in California, my friends were out of luck. But I had Shaboom, so I was lucky. But when people were like, hey, what should I do for working out? Da -da -da, how am I going to keep my strength? There was one specific uh, person that like it dawned on me and I and I had been getting into sprinting more and more because of Altus and Buddy Morris and and even just talking to Drew Peterson again because where I worked it was like it was like a low impact training it was you know walk with sleds lift some maximal weights it was very into low impact you felt good but you know what I mean in my opinion you got to stress some shit out you don't want the first time you feel bad that be in a in practice or a game is you're not going to get better after that so um I got more into sprinting, but during that COVID year, this one fighter, he said, how, how, do, how the hell do I maintain my force production? And because 
I think he got so much into West Side Barbell. Um, that that's what that's how he asked me, and I was like, well, sprinting, jumping, you could hit the hill, and I was like, that's you know what I mean, the amount of force you produce during sprinting, and da da da. So my favorite exercise, to be fully honest, and I think it has the most bang for its buck for most people, especially as you get older, as you're finely tuned. You know what I mean? You got to, they, they say, I don't know if they use it as often as they do, but we used to say lifting age a lot. Like, uh, I started lifting at 12. So I got a 22-year lifting age, 21-year lifting age. I don't know how old I am. Um, I lie about that, too, just like my height. Like, I'm really 6'6". Six, six. And, um, but the sprint, I, I like every aspect of it. You know what I mean? And you could break it up into parts. You could break it. You could go on the hill. I like running backwards. I like lateral runs, not shuffles, but like lateral runs where your torso is facing one way and your hips are facing the other way. So to me, those are that's my favorite exercise. If you're trying to maintain strength, gain strength, especially as you get older, something I found for me personally and something Buddy Morris has pointed out to me, something Drew Peterson has confirmed with me, um, it, it does become a bit of myth. It, even the Altus guys, it becomes a myth that you just keep lifting, you'll keep getting faster. You, you look at anything, everyone plateaus. You take a 14-year-old, they do their first squat, they run a little faster. You know what I mean? They do their first deadlift, they get a little faster. Eventually, these things stop, right? Their strength goes up and their speed goes down. Their strength goes up and their jumps go down. You know, it could be they change weight classes and stuff, but you still got to do your sprinting. The amount of force you produce and absorb, it can't be mimicked in the weight room. It's not even close. You'd have to squat, you know what I mean? Even for like an average athlete, you'd have to squat three to four times your body weight multiple times to, to uh, mimic that force. So for me, I talk about to Ted Larson about this. This is my, my pal, one of my favorite players. Somehow he's, he's been a backup. I call him the Rodney Dangerfield of O-line. He's been a backup his whole career, and he's got like 100 starts. Because uh, he's just very valuable. He could come in, and there's a little drop-off between him and any starter in the NFL. So it's been weird to me. He's the Rodney Dangerfield of O-line play. But we were literally just talking about sprints today. So um, one thing it took me a while to get more comfortable with and having athletes do was flying 10s flying 20s even, where it's like a max velocity sprint where you're building up and then you're going all out for 10 yards. You're very upright. Your force production is very vertical. I was always, uh, when I started introducing sprinting more, I was more stuck in the acceleration stuff. You know, 5 to 10 yard off the line. We could do it out of a stance, sprinter stance. Again, now we're going back to general from specific, specific. Sprinter stance, switch hands both times because we're not trying to run our – best 100 meter this is an exercise um we do pop-ups we do from a knee we could do lateral from a knee we could do rolling over we could do uh, falling starts all that kind of stuff um th those were like my go-tos throwing the med ball into a uh 10-yard acceleration i really enjoyed those and then of course the the um uh sled sprints but let's just for, for sake of the argument I'll say that's a different workout because I think my number two thing would be sleds. And then my number three favorite movement would be, by sleds I mean like prowlers, car pushes, truck pushes, like that, bob sled pushes. I don't know if you freaking have access to that. Uh, maybe not on ice, but maybe the ones that the Jamaican bob sled team originally had in that Disney movie on the dirt. That makes a lot of sense. But uh, I'll call that a, a different exercise, and I'll just say Olympic variations are my third favorite. So um, 
but yeah, I was into the acceleration phase of the sprint and then uh, and hill sprints, right? Because they don't the hill sprint, especially if it's less impact on your knees, especially when you uh, haven't sprinted a lot or you're 300 pounds, like most alignment are. I like the hill sprints. As I've progressed and seen so much, uh, just positive carryover, and uh, most notably when adding sprinting into a program, especially when I was working in a place that was like very low impact, I would take them to the park and started doing sprints in the turf. Um, the two biggest things you notice is their strength gains in the weight room, which that was counterintuitive because everything was what Westside said was, you know what I mean, get stronger, you get faster. And that, that dies after a while. With sometimes you get faster or do the speed work, you get stronger. And I think that one, in my experience with the athletes I've worked with, helps true. And I've had a lot of conversations with Drew and Buddy about that. Um, so that was most notably was the strength gains. And number two was the um, mobility gains from adding sprinting in. And uh, more so, though, when it was uh, the max velocity. So I'll kind of explain why that happens. And I'll just kind of explain the uh, the two types. So when you're looking at acceleration, um, you're putting more, like the, the freak, man. Oh, well, we're getting to science today. Is the, the force vector is more horizontal, meaning you're pushing down and away, right? You're not just pushing vertically. Like a squat would be you pushing vertically. Uh, a kettlebell would have more of a horizontal force vector, a glute or a back extension on a machine or on a glute ham raise would have a horizontal force vector, a glute bridge uh, or weighted glute bridge. You know, you put the barbell on your hip. I think it's very controversial. I think it's a great movement. That's a horizontal force vector, right? Um, that's the acceleration part. That's what alignment spend most of their time in is there. Uh, but when you get to the max velocity part, your force vector is more vertical. So, like, as Alta says, your leg shanks, your lower leg is going almost vertically through the ground. I think that's where you get the most mobility. So, and um, what I found was that when we started doing that, people's hip extension started increasing, and their shoulder extension started increasing. So, so shoulder extension, for those just listening, is your shoulder is going backwards. So, if you're running, it's your arm that's back. If you're doing dips... That's putting your shoulder into extension. If you're bench pressing down at the bottom, that's putting your shoulder into extension. So in sprinting, once you get the max velocity, your tissues are just being forced and they're getting propelled back and forth because you're touching the end range and then it's flying back. So yes, you're putting force to the ground and absorbing force, but a lot of this is your tissues meeting in range. So once you hit that in range, what I found was people's shoulders got more mobility, especially that extension. And their hips got more mobility, which in, in the extension. So that's like when you're doing a lunge, the back leg, that's extension. So what I found was is that surprisingly enough, it took away a lot of guys' patellar tendinosis, tendinitis, tendinopathy, patellar knee pain. Because I think it, this is me not being a genius. This is me being a meathead. But creasing that hip extension kind of opened up that whole quad for them, right? which was counterintuitive of everything I was ever taught, not everything I was ever taught, but at one point, a place I worked where it was like, oh, it just it makes your knees worse. Well, it was improving people's knee pain because they were getting more hip mobility. 
and it was opening up that front capsule, that area from like the hip flexor down to the uh, kneecap. So that was coming from the max velocity. And then there was guys that could not do dips because it hurt that all of a sudden could do dips. And what happened? They got more uh, range of motion. Um, I remember, and talk, I'll bring up another name, Brett Fisher. He's the awesome physical therapist out here. I remember talking with him and Buddy Morris because he, he owns a physical therapy center, but he also works for the Cardinals. And I was talking to Buddy and him. Um, we, I was asking him because a, a bunch of my friends, we all had a bunch of calf injuries and hamstring injuries, and we were looking over the program, and they're like, oh, there's not enough sprinting, and there's not enough change of direction, da da da. But he was saying, you know, um, that uh, another reason I love these movements is that guys that don't, uh, that don't sprint and they just do a bunch of, like, ladder drills and stuff like that, especially in between OTAs. When OTAs ends and minicamp ends, you have, like, a six-week break. Guys that don't sprint into agilities, they, get ha- they always get hamstring injuries and um, calf injuries during training camp. And they'll admit there's just freak accidents. Like, I think Buddy would always say Usain Bolt towards, popped his hamstring, and he's an elite, elite sprinter. And no football players are elite sprinters. I mean, DK Metcalf did some impressive stuff, but – you know what I mean? You get the gist of the story. So another reason I love those lit or love that exercise, I'll just call it, is because it uh, the amount of force you're producing and absorbing really makes your uh, posterior chain, your calves more robust. So you get more strength, more mobility. I love all that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, yeah sprints. It's crazy, right? That's my favorite exercise. Like as a true meathead, even to this day. So I'll give you an example of what I like to do. I like to touch max velocity uh, twice a week, right? And I just do low volumes. So if I, if I, I need to put this out here to recommend it because people can get hurt sprinting. So if you're just going to start adding this in and you're not an athlete anymore, you're coaching or whatever, but you like what you hear about sprinting, ease yourself in. You know what I mean? Do some 10-yard dashes and stuff. And if you're going to do the flying 10s, keep the volume low. So for me, like, one day a week, I do uh, some type of acceleration. It could be a prowler. It could be sprints on my driveway. I'll put the wrestling mats down, uh, or I'll do banded sprints, or I'll just do 10-yard dashes at the park or in the backyard. Um, and then I like to do max velocity. I like to touch these things twice a week. So today, what I did was, uh, you know, two. I did three flying 10s. I did a good warm-up, and I did three flying 10s, and then I did uh, a flying 20. Okay, so very low volume. That was, that was my workout, right? After like a 30-minute warm-up, I went and did some accessory movements. I'm going to go to jiu-jitsu tonight. Uh, late with, at some point this week, after a good warm-up for either striking or wrestling or jiu-jitsu, I'm going to hit two flying 10s on a mat, on a wrestling mat barefooted. Our, our, the gym I go to, Jay Page, is a huge uh, mat. But for whatever reason, I barely lift anymore, right? I do a bunch of flow, and I lift three kind of it depend it varies the two to three times a week uh where I'm touching weights and like I have maxed out a couple times this year and I've gotten stronger not crazy strong and we're talking like trap part deadlift deadlifts and stuff like that but I've gained like 10 pounds on that with doing it less but I do more sprints so I feel like touching those those um those sprints have you know really activated high motor threshold units and stuff there's units you, you if we're talking hamstrings, there's a lot of good posterior workouts. None of them come close to the amount of motor units used in a sprint, especially max velocity. They do not come close. There's not a hamstring exerciser machine 
that comes close to a sprint. And at Altus, I did a talk. We did like an online summit thing during the pandemic, and I would they had me on to talk online stuff. Um, it was because of the company I work for. I got that opportunity, so I appreciate that because I respect the hell out of some uh, um, Altus. And there was a bunch of guys on there, you know what I mean, really big wigs in the in the uh, strength and conditioning community. But when they talked hamstring injuries, they said, what's the best exercise? And they all agreed that the vaccine for coming back from a hamstring injury is touching max velocity sprints. That might have been what caused the injury also, but normally it's faulty gait, faulty movement patterns, all kinds of stuff contributing to that. It's very multifactorial. It's not just, oh, your hamstrings are weak. But running with good form, max velocity was the answer. So the strength coach for the um, Denver Broncos, this was the coolest story I heard, and this really had me sold on getting the old lineman to throw in max velocity because I had only been doing like one max velocity every two weeks, like one flying 10. So he said he has this athlete that had him from another team. He had hamstring injuries every year, every season, every training camp, whatever. For four years, he had hamstring injuries. He got to um, Denver, same thing happened. So when they started like going over all his data from like the catapult system, they were like, oh, he's not even coming close to like his max velocity in season from his max velocity uh, in the offseason because they kept the catapult on him. And they go, we need to have him touching max velocity once a week. So they look at, basically, they look at his data throughout the week in season. This is in season. And they go, hey, he's off. Let's pull him to the side right now. We're going to have him do two flying tens and make him touch that max velocity to keep his hamstring healthy. And that was, they, had, they did that. And for the first time in his career, I think over the next two years, was the first time he never had hamstring injuries. And what they realized is that he just wasn't touching max velocity during the week and he would get in the game. He would hit, have to hit max velocity among all the mass volume of change of direction and stuff like that. And boom, he would pop it. So that's what sold it for me. I'll give you one more story that I liked. Um, Dan Pfaff from Altus. He, uh, I, I can't remember if he was at the high school when he was – a strength coach at a high school or LSU, but he had taken a data of like years of sports and they looked at every position of every sport and they were talking about hamstring injuries. And I, I didn't, I didn't mean to get into hamstring injuries. I'm just trying to tell you so many, it's multifactorial while I'm passionate about this freaking exercise. So I'm, I'm, I apologize. My apologies. Anyway, you know, I freaking ramble anyways. It's your fault for being here. I'm going to ramble. You're going to be on my freaking, you're going to listen to this. I'm going to ramble. Anyways, it, when he looked at all sports, and every position of all sports, the two positions, or, or well, yeah, one, one, the one position in one sport that had the least amount of hamstring injuries were uh, defensive backs in football and basketball players. So he had realized, like, hey, when you look at that position and you look at the demands of those positions, they're always moving, you know what I mean, different angles and stuff. So he had kind of developed something he did for, to avoid hamstring injuries and this is something I do myself and I do with my athletes is that he'd have them run their max velocity sprints and then he'd have them run max velocity sprints uh, laterally. So like my chest is facing left, but my hips are facing forward and run, you know, like a 20 yard sprint like that and then do it the other way and then backpedal. So just adding those four movements in would challenge like different planes of the hamstrings, some of the adductors even, and what, 
people were more robust having less injuries. I think he was doing that for his track athletes, but since for football players, for O-line, you know what I mean, we're not, if we're in our drills where we're solving problems, because as Ross Cooper will say, Gorilla Missiles will say, a drill has to address a problem. Otherwise, it's tissue adaptation, right? It's a big difference. Uh, and if you're doing football drills where I'm having guys make reads and or having moves done against them and stuff, or we're doing one-on-ones or there's multiple angles and all this stuff, you're not going to really touch these these angles, but they're, in a game it could happen because all this, or these these velocities. But in a game it could happen because you could have a quarterback throw an interception, or you could get out on a pull and you had a good block and the running back broke one and you had to keep going. So for tissue adaptation, those are something I do with my athletes and do myself is um, on either an acceleration day or a uh, like a flying ten day, and I do this not as often with myself, but um, like. Last week was the last time I did it. I'll, on acceleration, I do some backpedal accelerations, some regular accelerations, and some lateral accelerations. Again, hips facing forward, uh, torso facing the other way. Uh, and the week before, I did those things in, in a flying 10 fashion, right? So I build up, and then for 10 yards, lateral run as fast as I can. 10 yards, backpedal as fast as I can. 10 yards, sprint as fast as I can. So uh, that's like a good tool. So and the cool thing about sprinting is look at how many – freaking variations that came up with one exercise with no equipment and there's a freaking pandemic hopefully this bullshit never happens again and don't say I'm, I'm not picking a side politically do not fucking cancel me but hopefully this shit never happens again but if you if it doesn't and you need to maintain your force production like my fighter friend you go sprint you could do the hill sprint you could and backpedal and lateral runs and agilities and call it a day with no equipment and still maintain some strength okay i'm my apology yes that is my favorite movement uh and then the last question was, I get the idea of mental toughness. Uh, see, this is exactly why I don't like saying names, because he kind of bashes head coach. But basically, uh, it's coach, the head coach makes him run crazy 300s. Is this really necessary every day after practice? And I, that was funny, because in my high school, we ran crazy 300s. It wasn't 300-yard shuttles. In the NFL, I've ran 300-yard shuttles. Most of the time, it was not the strength coach that wanted it done. It was the head coach. The strength coach thought it was stupid, but they had to do it. You know what I mean? You got to listen to the big man. This guy is very similar. Uh, but I, in the NFL, 300-yard shuttles were uh, 50 yards back and forth six times or 25 yards back and forth or, or, or 12 times. You know, however you get to – either you're doing 25 yards to 300-yard total or 50 yards to 300-yard total. He said crazy 300 specifically, which I – I didn't know anyone else did this, but at my high school what we did was we'd – They'd call it a sprint. You'd sprint 300 yards or 100 yards. You're no one sprinting after practice, especially 100 yards. It's not a sprint. You know what I mean? It's, you're done after practice. Besides, you're in pads and you're an old lineman. If you're, an old, you're not sprinting. You're running. You're, you're jogging. Uh, you're, um, and then you backpedal 100 yards, and then you bear crawl 100 yards. So that was like our conditioning day. And then we also did it for punishment. So we did crazy runs. That's what he's saying. Okay, like this is tough. Like, what do you say? Yeah, I get the idea of it, mental toughness. For me, uh, I think there is a gift, and you've heard me talk about this with Dr. Looney. There is a gift of mental resilience, and that's, that's his phrase. There's a gift of mental resilience that comes after hard work. Um, there is a uh, – you get a, a sense of accomplishment, but 
you have to use hard work, take hard work with a grain of salt because sometimes it's just stupid, okay? I've seen um, people, like, like a lot of coaches have the belief of we need to get bigger, we need to get stronger and faster. How many times I heard that in college or how many friends I heard have had said, their college coach said this offseason or this recruiting class, our goal is to get bigger, stronger, and faster. But you look at their behavior and there's a big discrepancy between their behavior and their belief. So I believe we're going to get bigger, stronger, faster, but we're also going to do mat drills every day and crazy 300s after practice. How does that get anyone bigger, stronger, or faster? Let's think that through. So this is not going to change anything for your head coach, but maybe. Maybe you show them you can't because it makes you look like you're bad-mouthing them or complaining. I, I, I empathize. So if your goal, and I feel like every freaking coach has said it, we want to get bigger, stronger, or faster, is that's your goal, but then you do mat drills every day in college, um, or you do crazy 300s or 300-yard shuttles after practice, what part of that suggests bigger, stronger, or faster? I, 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 don't, I don't see it. You're running slow. You're just burning calories. You, and so you're probably losing muscle or losing fat or getting good at running slow, right? So if, right there, that's the red flag. That's the whole meme going around right now red flag, red flag, red flag, is that your beliefs and your behavior are, two different, are in two different worlds right now. The, and the idea of mental toughness, um, I, I, I accept, I'm more accepting of the word right now. I think it's annoying. Like people suggest that um, if we do a bunch of dumb shit, people will become tough. Mm, that's, that's beyond debatable, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of studies suggesting otherwise. There's a lot of studies that suggest like what you're looking for. Some say grit, some say mental resilience. I think all the studies are somewhat subjective as far as I can as far as I can tell, but I think for me and what I've noticed is that with mental toughness comes from just being more confident and being more competent, right? Confident and competent. Uh, and there is that gift of mental resilience from accomplishing something hard, but we could be more creative than uh, crazy 300s or 300-yard shuttles or mass amounts of gassers or mass amounts of bear crawls. Um, at the end of the day, I feel that I, – I, I say this all the time for everything. One extreme begets, begets another extreme. So you can see it politically. This politician creates this politician. You can see it socially. Uh, a tough guy creates a woke guy. Uh, and in football, we've had so many coaches – that wanted to run like a military-style strength program. We wanted to do what the Navy SEALs do. Um, and what happened was is that there was a whole nother extreme out of that, which I don't, wouldn't really call it extreme. I would call it smart, is that they used the science and the physiology, and they looked at biomechanics and motor units and all kinds of stuff and developed these programs where things aren't really hard, right? It's, it's, they're training smarter, not harder which is very important. I can think of so many people from different disciplines that have said that. Ali, Hicks and, Grace, uh, Hicks and Gracie, uh, most of my strength coaches, you know what I mean, most of my martial arts instructors, smarter, not harder. But what happened, in my opinion, what's happened over the years is we still have these coaches that will do crazy 300s, and then there's all these other strength coaches that really like, hey, we're going to take four-minute break in between sets. We're going to run a max sprint. We're going to recover for four minutes or whatever. We're going to be fully recovered and do this again. And 
we're going to get the most out of the workout. We're always going to be fully recovered to hit max velocities, da, 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 all kind of stuff like this. I'll take the latter all day, right? That makes more sense to me. But um, because of the other extreme, I think we have gotten away from shit that is hard. Now, I'm not saying stupid. I still think a lot of these things are stupid and antiquated, like crazy 300s and 300-yard shuttles and gassers. But having said that, in a perfect program with perfect rest periods, it doesn't account for chaos. This is my opinion, okay? So there is something to say about throwing in some hard shit. I think after practice, no, go stretch. Did they have a good practice? Did they put in 100 reps? How many? I don't know how many reps teams are doing, but go stretch, do a cool down, walk a couple laps, call it a day. Um, but we've gotten so far away from, I think, the really good strength coaches, the ones that I'm like, I'm calling it a stream, but I'm on your side. I think that because of this military-style training and you kind of you, you, you know what teams in the NFL training camp were just Mass amounts of IR guys, mass amounts of guys retiring. You heard they were running after practice. They were running before practice. They were doing up-downs and stuff like that. Um, like I said, that extreme has created this extreme where we've gotten so far away from it. So for me, and this is a phrase from Coach C, Coach Christophus, my striking wrestling coach, is uh, you know, for him it's the totality of training. So there has to be like a, you know, push someone mentally hard. My stance on this is I empathize with you on this question is that sucks is that you guys are doing crazy 300s at the practice. I don't think it uh, creates mental toughness. I think it may, creates more tired, slow, beat down, and resentful athletes. That's my opinion. I would say those are the traits you're getting out of that most likely. Um, but in training, I'd, you know what I mean, let's say in an off season, let's say you do a good program. Let's say you take Buddy Morris's program. And you left there, your heart rate never got over 100. It was completely alactic movement. You recovered between each set. You were strong on each set. You didn't drop off on your times on the sprints. Your weights were perfect. The speeds on the velocity stayed the same. And he called it a day. It wasn't hard, but it was a lot of quality work. In football, it is freaking chaos, right? At any moment, you could go to two-minute um, – you, you could go to two-minute offense, there could be a pick, and you had to run 80 yards. There's so much going on. For me, like I said, the totality of things, the last thing I want to do is for a player to be the first time he experienced something hard is in the game, right? So I'd, I want to see them. I want to see how a player reacts. I want to see how a player adapts. I want to see how they recover. I want to see their, uh, you know what I mean, what's their recovery skills? What's their approach to recovery looking like during something that is difficult? right? Not stupid. We could be creative. We could do battle. It could be battle ropes, right? You could do battle ropes, work somebody. You could do jump rope, right? You could do some things that are not just completely pointless. They might have some carryover. Um, uh, you could do things with med balls. You could do things with, uh, uh, you know, I think Olin does like the uh, O-line um, uh, pummeling. It's like pummeling for wrestling, but he does an O-line version of pummeling. Um, you could do uh, sled pushes. You could do, like, strongman-type challenges. There's a lot of things that you could do freaking hard that can show you a, a person's how they kind of just uh, reorganize and adapt to something super hard. Not stupid. Not stupid. Screw the 300s. 
but how they adapt and reorganize and get ready for the next set or get ready for the next rep. And you can even teach them uh, breathing techniques or ways to recover in between. So in the game, they have some context. So I always I say this for everything. Uh, the one extreme begetting another. Um, where we had all this military training, we've gotten so far away from adding something hard in because we know it's stupid, you know what I mean? Um, but I, just having been in the game, having played a lot of games, having watched a lot of games, having been in practice, shit gets hard. It's a lot more chaos. And I, to me, you have to find a way to account for that, right? There's something to say about it, doing something hard. Um, I'm, not a big, I'm not a big walk with sled guys but, or a sled, sled guy, but, you know what I mean, that's something that's not going to beat guys up. You could do some bear crawls with some sleds and stuff after a, a workout. And uh, let's just say, like as Buddy Moore says, you have uh, football is alactic aerobic. Aerobic, by definition. Not anaerobic, alactic aerobic, by definition. You could challenge some of those aerobic uh, portions of the game with some sled bear crawls and just have guys exhausted and their legs are burning. It's not lactic acid. Don't say that. It's not lactic acid in your, in your, uh, that you're feeling when you're burning. But you could have guys go through that, go through some hard things and get them to the point where they don't want to stand afterwards and be like, hey, man, fight that urge and stand tall. We know you're tired. We know it, you, it hurts. And they, I think, personally, you get that mental resilient gift by including those things. So for me, it is the totality of things. I love a well-thought-out, smart program, where especially if we're hitting heavy lifts or high speeds. We're recovering in between, fully recovered. But remember, remember the demands of the game and the fucking chaos. You know what I mean? You think of uh, the fighters and stuff standing in the corner while the other guy's just dead. You think of like Ali, uh, Ali and Frazier, right? He stood up in the 11th round because that's what he lost the first time. He stood up in the 11th round. Frazier was dead, right? That does something. It does something that's not in the fucking textbook. It does something that's not in the physiology. Like, it, it fucking hurts when you're dead tired and you look across the guy and he's breathing through his nose. And I don't give a fuck what the sport is. I don't care. Even if it's just you working out versus another guy, and that guy's just competing. It does something to you, right? And I could get into the we – we could pull out a, the DSM and talk about the mental part, aspect of that. But just know these things matter, and they don't necessarily show up in the textbook. And I'm a big textbook guy. I believe in the textbook. I believe in, you know, writing that good program. But just remember, the game, you need to prepare for the extremes. It's not the, it's not the just – the, the monotony of the game, the five-second play, 40-second rest that you want to prepare for. You want to prepare for that fucking chaos. You want to have guys ready for chaos. So if you could introduce a general version of chaos, at least they have experienced it, right? General, and when they get to the specific chaos, I'll t- like I'll tell you one of the hardest things in the world was getting in a fight in practice. Well, that's why I was, that was part of the reason why I do fighting in the offseason, right? Because you get in a fight in practice, it's tiring. Well, I wanted to be there before. You know what I mean? I wanted to hit a two-minute round before so that 10-second fight where I'm puffing and puffing, I wanted him to be huffing and puffing and me to be smiling, right? No one really gets knocked out in a, a football fight. I think Bill Romanowski knocked somebody out and someone got sued. 
Most of the time, the helmet stays on. Most football players that get in fights are undefeated in fights because their helmets are always on. But that was something I always wanted to account for because, you know, I used to pull guys to the ground and all that bullshit. I knew I was going to get in a fight, right? So something I wanted to account for. That was the chaos I wanted to account for. So when I'm trying to make a roster as the 60th man and I'm trying to get to the 53rd man or the 52nd man, that when I get in a fight and I have to go do a play again, there's no drop-off because I prepared for that chaos. That's what I'm saying. So one extreme begets another, but don't get away and don't forget the demands of the game. Don't get away from the fact that shit's hard. And crazy 300s do not make you mentally tough, but there is a way to give a mental resilient gift to an athlete. Explain to them why it's important, decorum and shit like that after something hard. That's my take. I'm sorry I haven't been here more uh, uh, steadily lately, but we're back. I appreciate you guys. I thank you for the feedback. Like this post, share it, um, give me a five-star review, unless you think it's a four. If it's a three-star, message me first. I'll try to correct it. Uh, don't leave a three-star. But uh, I appreciate you guys. Keep the questions rolling in. We'll be filming next week. I got some more quick tips coming. We're good to go. Thanks, guys.